The Gist is sponsored by BET, presenting the miniseries The Book of Negroes. Adapted from the acclaimed novel by Lawrence Hill, The Book of Negroes tells a universal story of loss, courage, and triumph. Starring Anjanou Ellis, Lyric Bent, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Lou Gossett Jr. Available now on DVD. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 7th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The trial of Jahar Sarnayev has gone to the jury. This is not the sentencing phase. The defense team's entire play is to generally admit his guilt and to bank everything on the sentencing phase and argue against the death penalty. If you read the verdict forms that the jury is going through, pretty interesting, 30 counts. And what they do is they try to take out each weapon and make that its own count. So pipe bomb number one, pipe bomb number two, pressure cooker number one. One count that they're a weapon of mass destruction. One count that they're a firearm. One count that they're a firearm that was brand There's an interesting one in there, though. All right. A weird one. Check this out. As to count 22 of the indictment, charging that on or about April 18th, 2013, the defendant used or carried a firearm during and in relation to a crime of violence, namely interference with commerce by threats and violence as charged in count 21 of this indictment. Yes, they're char- in addition to murder and terrorism and all the weapons charges, Tarnayev is facing a charge of interrupting commerce. I am not sure what to make of that. I do not know why that needed to be included in this whole list. I mean, he certainly interrupted commerce, right? I guess you could get him on a vandalism charge if you wanted to. You could charge him with murder and attempted murder, right? But I guess they thought the charge of interruption of commerce was important, maybe for precedent. I have no idea. Look, I also found, this is totally true, that one of the jurors, actually an alternative juror, has worn a Led Zeppelin t-shirt for six days of the trial, a Pink Floyd hooded pullover, I think, for one. Again, this is a long assignment. This is a grueling assignment. If you have to keep a reference to Houses of the Holy close to your heart to get through this assignment as a juror, I say you do it. On the show today, I will spiel about the Iranian deal. Yay! Mike finally spiels about the Iranian deal. I know, I know. Most of the time, I was staying quiet. I'm just doing my diplomatic best to let the details emerge. But first, we have a long interview with a guy whose podcast I've listened to for for years, Brian Koppelman. He is coming to Slate Podcasts today, and he's on the gist right now. Brian Koppelman joins me now. He is uh, the newest addition to the Panoply Firmament. He's bringing his podcast, The Moment, over to us. Hey, Brian. Pasco, what's happening, man? I'm well. Now, what I want to do is talk about the podcast that you've been doing. You're a screenwriter, but it's called The Moment. Why? For that reason, inflection points? Yeah, I'm really interested, and I always have been, in how people who accomplish remarkable things process the inflection points, particularly people who uh, accomplish remarkable things in some creative sphere. And I've always wanted to to understand how they seem to use those moments that might cause the rest of us to become either complacent or defeated, but they use them for fuel. And it's I, I would have these conversations away from the mic all the time. One of the great things, one of the things I'm, I, I'm most happy about, uh, about the fact that I'm a filmmaker and get to do this stuff is I, I come into contact with a lot of these people and have throughout my life, and I would sit them down and have these conversations. And then... I love podcasts. I, I love the, especially the interview form. I think it's the most intimate, fresh form of communication that 
uh, exists now. And, and I would walk, I walk through Central Park listening to podcasts, and I, I have for a long time, and I realize I can combine these things, this, this love of these kind of conversations with the love of this nascent form, and started doing this about a year and a half ago. Who was, maybe not the best interview, though maybe it will turn out to be that answer, but the one who was most archetypical, where you said, that's why I called it the moment, that's exactly what I'm going for. People seem to love, and I did too, the interview with the author and speaker Seth Godin. And Seth talked about being at college and being lonely and having a blinding insight into how he wanted to organize his thinking differently and change the way he looked at the world. And it's something he'd never talked about before. You know, his TED Talks have 10 million views. He said he'd never really been asked it in the same way. And because, you know, as you know, when you do a podcast, you're talking long enough that if you're a careful and aggressive listener, people will tell you the thing they've been wanting to tell. So whether it's Seth Meyers talking about being on the cover of Time magazine and what that feels like as he's about to launch his show, or Amy Schumer talking about how she one night was telling a joke in Harlem and she realized there was a good joke buried inside it she said she hadn't fully committed yet to comedy. She cared a lot more about going home usually and going out with her boyfriend, but something about this joke bothered her in a really good way, uh, made her dissatisfied that she couldn't solve it. And she said she just went from Harlem all the way downtown and went to every single comedy club to work this joke. And that at the end of that run, which was a couple of nights, she not only found the joke, but found out that she was really a comedian. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of story that I love getting from people. Do you think that most creative process actually comes from the flash of insight moment? I mean, you're a screenwriter. If you want to dramatize this, that's what you do. The, the A plus B equals C thing. But do you, th- Or do you think it's more gradual? Do you think sometimes, I mean, maybe Amy's story is like um, a piece of uh, marble and she actually wore away at it over time. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I appreciate that you're not using the grad school word reductive, but I don't actually think that it, it is reductive. I think that Adam Duritz went on Saturday Night Live. A lot of stuff led up to that moment, for sure. A lot of rejection. They wanted him to play Mr. Jones first. He refused, demanded to play around here, threatened to walk out if they didn't let him play around here. And in that moment, he became Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows. In that, if he'd given in and played Mr. Jones, I don't believe he would have shown himself and his band in the world, hey, I will draw a line here because this is who I need to be. And what's really interesting to me is hearing from these people how they view it. And very often they do view it that way. They do think there were, yeah, stuff for sure. It built up. They made lots of choices. Uh, Mario Batali has an aneurysm right as Bobo is opening. And it's not a story he's told very often. Maybe one other time to a magazine he told it to me. The decisions that he made after that, whether he would recognize that as a moment or not, I see that, and I I want to know. I know that I would perhaps fold up the tent. Yeah. Um, you know what? I'm I'm going too hard. I'm not going to. At that point, he'd open his what second restaurant. Somehow, in the in the shadow of that, the guy opens all these restaurants, becomes the most successful restaurant tour in the world. I had David Chang is the first guest who's going to be on the moment here with Slate. You know, David Chang has all the Mamafuku restaurants, and he's one of the most successful restaurant guys. He's young. He's still 36 years old, has this giant business. And he talks about 
a moment when the thing was failing and somebody said something incredibly rude to him. And he said in that moment he was blinded with hate and that hate absolutely fueled him to succeed. Now, of course, before that, he'd done 10 years of work or eight years of work to become the best chef in the country. But in, in his own narrative, he found a way to take sustenance from that and to use it. And as a creative person, I'm interested in that because I always want to pick that stuff up because I want to, in the same way that business people learn best practices or, you know, go to a young president's meeting and hear about the successes and failures of other business people, you know, creative people, we don't do that as often. Maybe we don't think these rules or these ideas can be codified or we think it's all a lucky accident. But the more you have these conversations and talk about it, the more certain themes recur. You have a, a background in comedy. You worked, you discovered Eddie Murphy. You helped Eddie Murphy get his first. I didn't discover Eddie Murphy, but I, yeah, that's all in the WTF. I mean, I helped him get his first record deal, first, but I didn't discover him Okay, but you were there early. I, I discovered like, this guy's Tracy Chapman, that's true. So that, right, so Tracy Chapman, Eddie Murphy. Do you find that singers are a harder nut to crack than comedians? Do you think that singers are more opaque in their introspection in general than comedians? Look, comedians can give you a glib, quick answer. Yeah. And they're, yes, they have a store of pain that you can get to. It's funny, somebody tweeted at me today, like, uh, I love your podcast, but uh, please don't interview musicians. They're boring. But I don't see it that way because their work hits me so hard that I want to know. I love the Jason Isbell interview. Now, you know, he was, writes very confessional songs, and he had just gotten himself sober before this last album. And maybe he was really perfectly positioned to engage in that conversation. I don't know, songwriter. Do you find songwriters hard? Well, I guess I would reach the ones I've talked to, I've reached out to people who are known for being chatty. But then again, I'm not going for the hour and a half necessarily. I don't know if I always I sometimes I shy away from the confessional, you know. Why? I just want a want funny? No, I don't necessarily want funny. I just think that it could probably be done better in a different format. You know, when you have the time. I, th- I listen to your show and I listen to WTF and it does strike me. Well, it's definitely true with Mark. I have no idea if it's true with you. But Mark's show is very informed by, you know what, the interview style of therapy. That's the interview style. I don't know if that's true with you, but people there seems to be a part ha- People of have definitely said that to me. In the David Chang interview, I asked him one question. He said, I would tell it to my therapist. But I'm not a- as angry as Mark. Yeah. And I wouldn't have a podcast if it weren't for Mark's show. Mark's show absolutely made me know, okay, this is a form that I'm fascinated by. I have to figure this out. But, you know, Mark, especially in the first 200 shows, and I wrote about this. I wrote a piece about his uh, interview with Jim Brewer. I don't have that anger that I'm accessing when I'm engaged in it. So if Mark is a therapist, it's a primal scream session, and he's not sure which side of it he's on. For me, I'm informed by Tony Robbins and the way he interviewed people on his old Power Talk show. I'm informed by Howard Stern. I'm informed by Elvis Mitchell and by Marin. I mean, those are the four people who I listen to the most. You know, Tony Robbins in this interview that's hard to find now with John Wooden. That is just the best interview John Wooden ever gave. Wow. I had no idea that Tony Robbins was such a good interviewer. I didn't read your Brewer piece. By the way, did you think it was a good interview for why I did, which is I had always written off Jim Brewer yes. and this for the first time made me humanize him. Like, by the way, all three of us, you, me, and Brewer, guys from Long Island, right? I thought eh, kind of a jackass and a, and, and a guy who's driven by motivations that are mostly selfish and uh, turned out not I to be I think the, the case. first words of the piece I wrote yeah. uh, were fuck goat boy because 
I hate Goat Boy, I think, is the worst character in the history of SNL. But the interview is beautiful. Yeah. I thought, like, how did Mark get that out of Jim Brewer? Get My opinion of Brewer went 180. Right. I still think Goat Boy is a horrible character. A weakness of mine is, like, a certain kind of intellectual snobbishness, which the podcast has really helped me to knock down. But, you know, I could look at a guy like Brewer and, and of course, just write it off to, well, he was facile with uh, impressions. But how dumb is that? How uh, short-sighted is that? How blind? To think that some guy would make it to SNL without having just like scraped and clawed and worked and prepared and had huge failures and Mm -hmm. have to fight it again. Mm -hmm. And that's what was great about the WTF. I'm that way with musicians whose music I don't like, genres I don't uh, respect. We've gotten to the point where Nickelback is such a punchline to jokes. I bet those guys are great musicians. I bet I'm not giving Nickelback to Chad Kroger, you think the guy's the real deal? I think he probably studied at Berkeley and does his scales every The guy writes great melodies. Yeah, that counts, right? Of course it counts. I agree, they're not my band either. And the other day I accidentally stumbled upon an exegesis of Kansas's career, a self-exegesis, and they're talking about the moment that one guy brought in dust in the wind and another guy brought in the guitar riff to that. And of course, at first I'm, I'm listening to it ready to mock. And then halfway through, you just yeah. go, God, it must've been amazing when the guy brought dust in the wind in. Yeah. I know why you like that. Cause of the part where it says only for a moment and that moment's gone. Thank you. Dust in the That's wind. That's exactly right. Brian Koppelman's The Moment, now part of Slate's Panoply Network. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really fun. Thanks, Mike. The epic BET miniseries, The Book of Negroes, is now available on DVD in a special three-disc package based on the critically acclaimed novel by Lawrence Hill. The Book of Negroes is a universal story of loss, courage, and triumph starring Anjanou Ellis, Lyric Bent, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Lou Gossett Jr. Own it today on DVD from E1. And now the spiel, deal or no deal. The framework of the deal, we know, well, we know a little bit about it. The president and his team emphasize that Iran will allow inspectors. When? How? Surprise? We don't know. We know that centrifuges will go down from about 19,000 to about 5,000 under the deal. We know that the underground facility, the bomb-proof, well, okay, let's say extremely bomb-resistant Fado facility won't be shut down, but it will enrich uranium not to bomb-weaponized levels, but to the level needed to make some medicines. Because, you know, you really need an underground bomb-proof bunker to make medicine. You know how when you go to the pharmacist and that guy is on that platform, that platform that's there just for his ego? Well, imagine if you gave him not a foot and a high tall platform, but an extremely bomb resistant underground facility. How stoked would the ego of that pharmacist be then? Take it with milk, he shouts 250 feet below fortified sheetrock. All right, let's not judge the whole deal. We do not know the whole deal. Let's assess, however, some of the arguments, pro and con, around the deal. And we will label these arguments right or wrong or dumb or crafty or some combination of those four things. First up, here's what the president told NPR's Morning Edition. Keep in mind, though, currently the breakout times are only about two to three months by our intelligence estimates. So essentially, we're purchasing for 13, 14, 15 years assurances that uh, uh, the breakout is at least a year, that for, that if they decided to break the deal, kick out all the inspectors, break the seals, and go for a bomb, we'd have over a year to respond. 
And we had those assurances for at least uh, well over a decade. I call this right. I think it's right. I haven't seen much contradiction on the breakout time estimates, and I think it's crafty. In fact, I think it's the essential argument. If the debate is conducted on the ground that the president just laid out, he will win the argument. So what's that ground? He is debating the deal in front of us versus the actual situation that's been going on for years. He is debating the next year or even decade of reality versus the year or decade absent this deal. Because opponents of the deal are framing the argument differently. They're arguing the deal versus the ideal. A nuclearized Iran versus non-nuclearized. And they're saying, hey, we want the one without nukes. Well, sure you do. Which leads me to the next quote from Benjamin Netanyahu on CNN. Well, I think the uh, alternatives are not either this bad deal or war. I think there's a third alternative, and that is standing firm, ratcheting up the pressure until you get a better deal. And a better deal would roll back Iran's vast nuclear infrastructure and require Iran to stop its aggression in the region, its terror worldwide, and its calls and actions to annihilate the state of Israel. That's a better deal. It's achievable. I think this is wrong, but crafty. I think it's wrong because simply saying a better deal is there doesn't mean that a better deal is there. And when you hear what the components are, the components of Bibi's supposed better deal, like Iran renouncing calls to destroy Israel, it's basically Iran announcing their identity. If your requirement is that Iran stops funding Syria and Hezbollah and Yemeni rebels and recognizes Israel and gives up nukes, you're basically saying we require that Iran stops being Iran. It's called the maximalist position. How do you get Iran to not be Iran, that's where war comes in. War is a way to stop Iran from being Iran. But saying these things, saying all these arguments and reminding people that they call for the death of Israel, that's crafty. I'm saying it's crafty because the argument will resonate with American lawmakers who will be responding to the American people who don't want to negotiate with a terrible country like Iran. So reminding every set of American ears that Iran, yeah, is truly a terrible place. That is a crafty play on the prime minister's part. Okay, here's Lindsey Graham, Republican senator, South Carolina, deal opponent. Keeping the interim deal in place that's been fairly successful and have a new crack at it with a new president doesn't have the baggage of Obama. That is wrong, and that is also dumb. The interim deal is the deal where Iran went to 19,000 centrifuges and a two-month breakout time, right? This is one of those instances where Graham should never, ever compare the deal to the realistic alternative. He should always do like Netanyahu was doing, compare it to the ideal deal. Graham also says anyone but Obama could get a better deal. He said Hillary Clinton could get a better deal. He said every Republican could get a better deal, except maybe Rand Paul. He did say that. But he also says that, you know, these are the Iranians. You can't trust them. They're going to cheat. So how is it in this hypothetical better deal world, how is it that you're going to get the Iranians not to cheat? Right? Where do you, oh, we're going to get a better deal, but you know one thing about the Iranians, they always cheat, so you can't make a deal with them. So tell me how that happens. And in this hypothetical world, does Iran also throw kick-ass perm parties? All right. Lindsey Graham also said this. I don't want a war, but at the end of the day, I don't want to give Iran the tools and the capability to continue to destroy the Mideast and one day attack us by building bigger missiles. And until they say they will not destroy the state of Israel, until they stop their provocative behavior, I think we'd be nuts to give them more money and more capability. 
All right, so there at the end, you had those unrealistic demands we talked about. Iran essentially needs to stop being Iran. But in the beginning, did you hear, I don't want war, but, you hear that? I don't want a war, but at the end of the day, I don't want to give Iran the tools. Then some words that amount to, but if there's war, we'll take war. This is wrong and crafty. It's wrong. It's not factually wrong. I really do think he won't mind war. It is wrong to embrace war. Do I need to say it? I'll say it. It's wrong morally, but it's also wrong tactically in this case. But when you are negotiating with a tough enemy, it's not the dumbest thing in the world. In fact, it's crafty. That's why I scored it crafty. To strongly intimate that war is on the table. But it would be dumb if war really were on the table as an alternative to a plan that could preserve the peace. The president does not, however, escape scot-free. One thing he said on NPR raised my eyebrows. Uh, and then I think there are others inside of Iran who think that this is uh, counterproductive. And it is possible that if we sign this nuclear deal, we strengthen the hand uh, of those more moderate forces inside of Iran. This is, I think, wrong and probably more dumb than crafty. It's hopeful, but there's little reason to be hopeful. It's an argument that could be made, doesn't mean it should be made. It is President Obama displaying his greatest flaw, believing that adversaries are the same kind of creatures of logic that he is. He's a moderate. He believes that moderation will arise if you plant moderate seeds in rich, loamy, moderate soil. You'll get moderate results. Wrong. In Iran, the Ayatollah is still calling the shots, and make no mistake, he sees the value of those shots being nuclear ones. Anything that happens in Iran, the mullahs allow. In a real democracy, a wise man once said that extreme forces emerge because people cling to their religions and their guns when times are bad. So that would argue for better times leading to less extreme government. But Iranians aren't clinging to their weapons and clinging to their religion. In Iran, the religion clings to them. So I don't think this deal will bring in or usher in moderation. I just think it's an okay deal that doesn't make the world safe, but slows a great enemy's access to a great weapon for a bit longer, and I'll take it. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi's breakout time is two to three months. Just intern Claire Tennisgetter is fissile and unstable. In fact, she's gone. It's her last day. Claire, you glowed brighter than the New Mexico desert on July 16th, 1945. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, is to be used for medical purposes only. Guests of the gist stay at the Loma Linda Holiday Inn for first-class service and ice machines and little tiny pamphlets that tell you what's going on in San Bernardino. Our executive producer, Andy Bowers, is moving faster than an IR8 centrifuge. Follow us on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist or going to tell you about this daily email sign up if you don't do it already we'll send you an email when the show is ready not only will it alert you that it's ready you can click a link on that email and play the show right from that email if you have audio playing email capability that is at slate.com slash gist email to sign up for that the gist i got some 20 percent enriched uranium download download courtside i got what do you want 3.5 enriched uranium forget it don't waste my time you buy that stuff on uranium hub i mean i got the 90 percent enriched uranium you know me you know who i am i'm right here every day what do you mean you got another guy what do you mean you got it all right listen you use that guy and when you're holding a pewter plated hockey puck you come crying to me i got your uranium right here who needs uranium i got you uranium thanks for listening this is josh levine host of slate's sports podcast hang up and listen this week's episode we interview bob christensen sports 
TV theme maestro. What do we talk about with him, Stefan? And also how much he didn't like. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.